You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, this is Paul Thompson. This is Vina Jetty. Hi, this is Ziana McIntyre, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. My in-laws came to the United States with nothing. No job, no titles, no education to wave around on a job interview, and no big bank account. Pretty much they had the clothes on their backs and three young kids following behind. And they made do. They made do without American college degrees. They made do without professional skills. They made do with the little money that came in every week until, until my father-in-law happened to pass a building with a for sale sign on it. He didn't know much about America. He didn't know how to make a fortune, but he did know how to manage construction and he did know how to manage people. So he scrounged up the money from every single corner he could find extra change, and he bought this building with 12 units, and it provided. It provided cash flow. It provided purpose. It provided a living that would eventually fund not only his life, but the lives of his children, as well as his retirement. The real estate market has changed. This is not the real estate market of our parents. There are an incredibly new number of financial and real estate instruments. Each one of them has their own complexities. We all understand how important this valuable asset class is, and yet most of us are bewildered about what is the best way to get into it. Well, today we have three panelists who are going to discuss three unique flavors of real estate investing and why each one of them may be appropriate for you. And while we're on the subject of real estate, many of you are freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we're giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. 
Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Pay Armor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. Vina Jetty is one of the founders of Enzo Brands, a multifamily syndicator. She has over a billion dollars worth of assets under her management. What I really like about her is I met her originally on Facebook, and she thinks big. Whether it's real estate or life in general, you can't contain her, and that's why I'm really excited to have her on with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you were on with us before, is that right? I was. It was a fun podcast. No one would blame me if I called Ziana McIntyre the Airbnb queen. She owns six properties, manages greater than 20. And if you're looking to use Airbnb as a way to get into real estate, she's definitely the person I would call. Ziana, welcome back to the show. Thanks. And actually, I own seven properties now as of last month. (laughs) Congratulations. That's always the problem when I'm doing people's introductions is they're such movers and shakers that everything changes (laughs) by the time I get them on the show. Yeah. If you could see around me, I like strategically place myself in between all of the moving boxes. So yes. (laughs) Paul David Thompson is an entrepreneur, a mentor, and a friend. He's probably one of the smartest guys I know in the real estate space, and he always amazes me with all the tips and tricks and deals that he's pulling off on any given day. He's been the co-host of the What's Up Next podcast, and now we've rebanded to Earn and Invest. I sorely miss him in the co-host seat, but now I get to invite him back as a guest. Paul, I feel like I'm welcoming back the prodigal son. Oh, yeah. Well, it's nice to be back. It's great to have you on. You know, I noted that with your experience of being a host of this show, that at some point the urge might kick in and you might start hosting again. And that's completely fine with me. So is that a standing invitation that I can just stand in? Always. And certainly this time for sure. So Ziana, I'd like to start with you first. Who introduced you to real estate as an investment? And at that time, did you have much money to invest? Nobody really introduced me. I think for me, I'd always thought that it was a great way to make money. And it seemed like something that like wealthy people were doing. I guess if I was going to talk about an introduction, it was like rich dad, poor dad, which I think everybody says or very, a lot of people say. And I believe I read that in high school or something like that. And so it's kind of always was in my mind. A couple of lucky things happened. I had a landlord who now is a friend of mine and he's about 70 and owns 20 apartments in the same complex. And I ended up living in one of his apartments. And so that kind of got me thinking as well, hearing his story. He said he just had basic jobs until he was about 40 and decided to get serious. And that's when he started doing real estate. He just had the life. He would like, you know, play volleyball with all the kids and ride his bike everywhere. And he just seemed super chill and had all these apartments paying for his life. So I think that was really in my head. And then when the Airbnb thing came around, I was just a student and a friend of mine told me about the concept and I've been a longtime traveler and thought, yeah, that seems really cool. Let me try it out. And I didn't own anything at the time. I was just renting and then I had a spare room that I could re-rent at the time and that got me started. So I really had no money to put into it. It was just 
furniture I already had, sheets I already had, towels I already had. It really launched me from there. So it was a sort of lean startup real estate venture. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Vina, talk to me a little bit about Enzo Brands. How did it start and what were you doing at the time? We started by investing in multifamily buildings. So we basically syndicate multifamily assets, uh, class B assets, which means your 1980s, 1990s vintage, maybe it has a little bit of value add left on it. There's probably a lot of management play involved in it. We got started by, well, actually, I started in the single family space and my partner, uh, my co-founding partner also started in the single family space. And we both kind of got to a level where you can't have so many single family properties and achieve the scale you can with multifamily. So that's when we ended up partnering together and we started buying apartment complexes in the Texas and Florida markets, our home markets. Did you start right out of college or what was your first introduction to real estate as either a job or an investment class? I come from a real estate family. So I took like the shortcut in because my parents were real estate investors. My mom had a very successful real estate investing business. My dad, you know, did the whole W-2 job. So I grew up going to closings and walkthroughs. I didn't even realize until I was in my 20s, I think that most people don't do that as a weekend activity or like after school activity. And so I had the privilege of coming from a family who already had discovered and had been successful in this asset class. Our family had been through multiple downturns and done really well in the downturns, actually. It's when we actually bought more. So that's that was my first intro. And then after I graduated college, I actually worked for some of the large real estate investment firms. My most recent position before I left to start my own venture was at Tishman's Buyer in DC. So Paul Vina is talking about this idea that her parents modeled the behavior of real estate investing. And that's very similar to me. I grew up in a family where such behavior was modeled. So it was a natural fit for me to think of it as an asset class I wanted to be involved in. I know a little bit about your backstory being a co-host with you on this podcast in the past. Tell us about your real estate learning curve. When I first started thinking about it was right before I got married. So me and my wife were kind of putting together, or my my now wife at the time, fiance, was looking at kind of what our lives would be like together. And we knew we wanted to do something where we could live a lifestyle where we weren't living in scarcity or to earn enough income to kind of do what we want to do. And owning property was part of that conversation. But then you get married and you decide to have kids and you know you don't have a lot of money when you're in your early 20s, at least I didn't. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And so for a while, we were real estate agents as a way to learn how to become an investor. And it turns out that's not a good path at all. It's not what you're taught at, at all uh, being an agent. I mean, you learn a little bit about the market. You don't learn how to invest, that's for sure. 10 years later, I find myself climbing the corporate ladder and then realizing that basically my ladder was on the wrong wrong wall and I wanted a way out. And so I had to engineer my way out of the working world. And I kind of rediscovered the idea that real estate would be a, a viable path to do so. Ziana, when Paul mentioned that becoming a realtor was not a good intro into the real estate investment market, I saw you get a big grin on your face. Was that something you would consider doing? I had considered that actually. Yeah. For a long time, I thought I would just kind of end up there somehow. And a lot of people still tell me like, oh, you should go get your agent's license. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I see how it's valuable for people that buy and live in the same market. 
but I meet agents all the time because I'm utilizing them here and there in different markets. And I just find that so many of them have no idea. They're not working with investors. They're helping people find their one dream home for their lifetime. So it's just like a totally different thing. Airbnbs co-hosting the short-term rental market, those all seem like quite a bit of work. How did you decide that that was going to be your intro into this asset class? So I kind of started Airbnb with the model that people talk about now as master leasing. So that's renting a place and then re-renting it on Airbnb. So back in the day when I started, a lot of people didn't know about Airbnb. And so I was just making sure that I had subletting in my lease and I didn't really mention it to the owner except for saying like, you know, I travel here and there. I like to rent out my place when I'm not here. But they didn't know that, yeah, maybe I don't intend to live there at all. That was a little bit different. I left that out. So that's the type that people do now. And you can also buy a place and then you can co-host. And what I love about co-hosting, and it's definitely not where I started, but I still do a lot of it, is that it's really no investment to you. You know, someone's turning over a furnished home to you. And if it's in a market that makes money or doesn't make money, or if they bought it correctly or didn't buy it correctly, you're making money off of their investment. It's a really low risk for me which is a great position to be in if you're getting started. Could any of this happened before the Airbnb platform existed? It seems to me like that was a big turning point in this market was that platform became available and people started utilizing it on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I think there were always people doing like executive rentals, which are generally furnished rentals between three and six months. And they were always vacation rentals, but just maybe only in the vacation spots that are very specific, like beach places or ski rentals. And so it just wasn't as big of a thing And I think a lot of people had in their mind that, oh, renting a home is only reserved for the wealthy. That's not something that normal people can do. So Airbnb really blew that open and they were offering all kinds of stays. So, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but you can even just rent a couch in your living room on Airbnb. Or if you have a second bed in your bedroom, you can rent it as a shared space. Now, I get a lot of people wouldn't want to do that, but it's something you can do. And so I've seen some really creative ways that people use Airbnb, like renting just a spot in their backyard where someone can pitch a tent or renting an RV that's parked in their driveway or, you know, you can get really creative with it. Vina, I feel like people understand what Airbnb is because a lot of people have used it. On the other hand, when you use the term syndication, it confuses people quite a bit. Can you tell us what a syndication is? Yeah, essentially, it's putting together a group of investors to purchase a single asset. So maybe you want to buy a $20 million apartment complex, but you don't have $7 million for your down payment and all of your fees and then your renovation. So instead of writing a $7 million check, you get you know, 100 people writing a $70,000 check. And so it just makes those larger assets a little bit more attainable for people at lower investment amounts. In a lot of ways, Vina, I look at syndications and they sound a lot like REITs to me in the sense that you can buy into this larger project, but you might not be responsible for the day-to-day or moment-to-moment management. Is that a wrong way to look at this type of investment? It's similar in that it is a truly passive investment. Um, You don't have any control over the asset. You don't get to make day-to-day decisions. The way it's typically structured a little bit differently is that you are a direct owner in the title holding entity. The legal structure is a little bit different. In REITs, generally, you can't buy one asset and decide, okay, yes, I want to be involved in 123 Main Street. You have to actually just buy into a fund that has a 
certain investment criteria. So it's more of a blind fund or a blind pool or semi-blind pool maybe is um, what I would consider that to be. Whereas with Enzo, for example, our investor will get an email saying, hey, we're under contract on 123 Main Street. Are you interested in the project? We're raising $100 for it or whatever that number is. And you can pledge whatever amount you want to invest into and take a slice of the LP side of that. I should have mentioned that REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And often like index funds or mutual funds, people buy into them and they usually hold a series of real estate investments, unlike a syndication, which you're talking about, which might just be one or two buildings specific or one building specifically. Yeah. And there you can structure a syndication in a lot of different ways. So there are absolutely syndications that will do like a semi-blind fund versus a true one property or one asset syndication. We do one asset and we do that basically so that we can shield any liability from further assets or other assets. Or our investor might want to be in Orlando, which is a market we're heavy in, but they may not want to be in DFW, which is another market we operate in. That's why we do it on an asset by asset basis. So you can really pick and choose what fits your investment criteria. Paul, I feel like through what I know of you that your real estate investing has evolved from the time you bought your first property to what you're doing today. Talk a little bit about how you got started in real estate and what your life looks like now. What types of deals do you do today compared to when you started? Sure. When I first started, I was a a classic landlord and I had almost this opinion that if I'm doing anything but buying a rental, then I'm making a mistake. Like doing a flip or a wholesale or anything else was a mistake. And that has definitely evolved because you got to recognize that your life situation changes and you have to own a lot of rental property, especially if you're using leverage, a debt service to have enough passive income from rental properties, which is why so many people will scale up and go to multifamily. My evolution came from, I really just wanted out of my job and I wanted a lifestyle of business. And so now I have kind of designed my life where I'm in the middle of a whole bunch of, of deals. I, I tend to specialize in single family, but now I'm more on the paper side or I'm, I'm investing more and more inside of my IRA or inside of my solo 401k. So I'm doing a lot more of creative deal structuring where I'm kind of the puppet master of a deal, but I'm not involved. I never swing a hammer and I, I'm certainly not thinking about how I'm going to manage a property because that's not my skill set. My skill set is in the deal structuring. And a lot of people talk about things like buying and selling notes. Is that something you're involved in? And what does that mean? Yeah, I do, but I'm not as, that's not my specialty, but I tend to originate my own notes. To your original point of buying a note, basically just a promise to pay. Somebody uh, lends on, it's an owner financing deal or they or they lend on a given deal and they basically buy into the promissory note and that's what you're buying into. And so you're buying the paper and banks do this all the time. They buy and sell notes all the time. They'd package them up and sell them, sell them up to Fannie Mae. We do this on a kind of a secondary market in the single family space where we do that between individuals instead of going through large corporations or large entities. So you said you originate notes. So you're actually setting up the deals and getting other investors involved. That's right. Ziana, both Vina and Paul mentioned this idea of passive income. And I wanted your opinion on what you do co-hosting Airbnb. Would you call that passive? No, (laughs) it's not even traditionally real estate. You know, I think a lot of people get confused when they've been a long-term landlord for a while and they're like, oh, great, Airbnb can make twice what I'm making. I want to switch to that. And they don't realize it's really hospitality. You're creating these experiences for people and there's 
so much turnover. You can have different sets of guests throughout the week. So there's just a lot of moving parts. And there's a lot of automation now. There's a lot of cool softwares that you can have help you make it like a low time investment, but you are really on call. That's kind of one of the downsides that I'd say about it is that, yes, I can do this business from anywhere in the world, but I should probably check my phone every hour. I was looking at your blog page and when you go to the area where you can see the services you offer, it definitely appears that you're in the service industry. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's clear. You're talking about, you know, cleaning services, rental services, helping people Airbnb, helping people manage Airbnb, but it seems like a consulting job. Yeah, it definitely can be. And that's just kind of where I'm at today. I think I'm 33 and I'm moving towards what do I want to be doing at 35? Do I want to be more traditionally looked at as retired and then move into more syndication, not running them, but just investing in them because they're truly passive and they're awesome. (laughs) So Vina, let's talk about syndications a little bit. You know, in my mental framework, it's something I learned about just in the last few years, but it certainly seems like the rise of syndications is a new thing. And and I'm guessing some of that has to do with the rules that's changed about crowdfunding and how you can actually collect money. But my true question is, does syndication have a proven history? I feel like we know that you can go and buy a single family home and rent it out. And if you're fairly careful, you have a good chance of success. Do we feel as certain with syndications? It's the asset class, right? It's not so much the structure of the syndication because whether a check is coming from a single check writer or a hundred check writers, it doesn't really change the structure of the, or it doesn't, it changes the structure of the deal, but not the asset class itself. Multifamily has historically done really, really well, even through downturns. It's been a very stable asset class. We bought a property last year that was previously owned by like one of the Saudi royal family princes, right? So it's an asset class that has historically been inaccessible to your everyday working upper middle class, upper class family. But now because of the way the SEC has structured their rules for specifically 506 raises, 506C and 506B raises, it allows us to offer this opportunity to investors that are dual physicians or maybe someone who doesn't necessarily want to have an active role in real estate, but wants to diversify their portfolio, who wants to realize the tax benefits of being in real estate. All of those different reasons, I would say the asset class has a long track record. The syndication model, it's definitely shifting. It has shifted even in the last few years in a way that actually gives me a lot of pause and a lot of cause for concern. But I think overall, the asset class is still really strong. I think there's more concern around the operator level than the asset class level. So for the novice, maybe we should dissuade them to say that they're investing in a syndication. What they're really investing is, in your case, multifamily, and the way it's going to be funded is through a syndication. Maybe that makes more sense. Yes, that's correct. And really, I would say when you're investing in a syndication, it's not even just the asset class you're investing in. It's the operator you're investing in. You can have a really great asset and a really not great operations team and you can see an asset go way down. A really great team can take an okay asset and make it a really great investment. Paul, when I'm listening to Vina, I realize that there's specialized knowledge, even if you're doing this so-called passive investment that a syndication may be. You also must have a certain amount of specialized knowledge, given the fact that you're originating these deals. Talk a little bit about your learning curve for the legal issues about structuring these deals and how you picked all that up. 
Oh, wow. That's a good question. My nickname amongst my friends is called Knowledge Hog. I mean, I read and consume and attend conferences to learn. My goal is to be the professor of these subjects because I want to know them cold. Because it's really important when you're doing these transactions, especially if you're the one doing the paperwork, that you know the rules and you know the right questions to ask of your professionals. So the way I've gone about doing it is, you know, the, the podcast circuit we all like to do. Then also I go to a lot of conferences and I, I study intensely books. I, I go to the, the law library and I read the books there. I mean, I, I really have become a student of what is possible. And the more complex these deals get, the more you need to do that, especially if you're the operator. You, you need to know those SEC rules. You need to know lending rules. You need to know RESPA. You need to know Dodd-Frank. It gets very complicated. Ziana, the reason I got you three together here on a panel is I feel like there are different flavors of real estate type investments. And you all have chosen three very different paths for how you would be involved in this asset class. Tell me why the path you've taken, Airbnb, co-hosting, the consulting you've done, why has that flavor fit you the best? Well, I like Airbnb for newcomers because I think it really gives you the opportunity to kind of try before you buy in a sense. A good example that I tell people often is before I bought my first just one bedroom apartment. I was already running one that I was renting five minutes away. That was a one bedroom, just very similarly. And I was paying about 1100 a month in rent. So I knew that that property, I had run it over a year, that in my lowest times, I was making like 1700 In the height, I was making like 4000 a month. And then when I went to go buy one, my mortgage was only going to be like 950 And so I had been already doing it. It was so easy for me to say, yeah, totally. I can cover that in my sleep. I think for a lot of people just starting out, Airbnb can give you like a way to sort of take these baby steps in real estate without really jumping in. And I don't come from a family that owned real estate, not even their own home. And so it was a really scary thing for me to get involved with. And the very first home that I bought was like climbing a mountain. But then once you do it, it gets easier every time. And I could see how, well, yeah, you could just buy one every year, no problem, or twice a year. And I would say that Airbnb is one of the few forays you can go into this field where you do not need much startup at all when it comes to cash. Absolutely, because we all live somewhere. So you can even just say, you know, let me just try this Airbnb thing out. I'm going to go camping for the weekend and rent my place out. And how do I like communicating with guests? And how did they leave the place? And do I want to hire a cleaner? Do I want to clean myself? It like starts you off immediately making money and letting you know, like, is this a platform I enjoy or not? Vina, talk to us a little bit about syndication. Is that a place for beginners to get involved? Any kind of investing comes with risk, right? And I really hate it when people say like, oh, multifamily has no risk because that is not true. There are always risks in every investment you make. I think that it's a great place for beginners to start if you want to be passive. I think if you want to be active, it is definitely harder to break into multifamily right away, but it's definitely possible too. There's just a lot of content and a lot of knowledge to consume and to understand and learn. And it's hard to start off all by yourself. So I would say if you wanted to be a beginner getting into multifamily on the active side, it makes a lot of sense to partner with somebody who has already done what you want to do and find a way to be involved in an existing business that already has a proven model and use that as kind of your spring board into multifamily. Paul, let's say you have someone who is interested in your mastermind, they're listening to your podcast, and they would like to reproduce your trajectory. Why would they want to do it? 
Is it better returns? Is that why you've evolved to the place you have? Or is it less active work once things are set up? What got you to where you are today? What got me to where I was, was the understanding what I wanted out of my life. So knowing thyself, and and I always like to tell people to invest in what they understand the most first. So if you have access to somebody in your your life with commercial real estate experience, go there first. But if you know nothing else, you've lived in an apartment, you've lived in a house, and you kind of get what it's like to live in a property and what people want. So bite off the smallest piece you can do. If you live in a house or you have a place that you could sublet, Airbnb would be fantastic uh, because you could taste it. And when I started, that didn't occur to me. The lowest small thing that I knew to get into was houses because that's what I understood. And so I bought a $30,000 house and I thought, okay, even if I lose it all, I'm not going to go bankrupt over a $30,000 house. I just incrementally grew myself into it. Looking back on it, you look at my trajectory and you think, well, how'd you do that? I have no idea. I didn't know that that's what I was doing because I was just doing the next incremental step. Anything you get into, it's always breaking things down into what is the next thing I need to do? And the obstacle in my way is my next thing. Paul, let's go back though to the elephant in the room and that's returns. Have you found that originating these deals, doing what you're doing now is getting you the best returns as compared to what you started with? Yeah. So typically anything that you're actively involved in, you can control better returns. The more passive you get, the less likely you're going to get higher returns. That's just the the equation that you have to deal with. I have tried to find a happy medium to where I can do the least possible and get the highest returns. And I have found that to be paper. Ziana, speak to that idea. The more active you are, the more returns you get. Certainly what you're doing running a hospitality business takes some active participation. How are you finding the returns? Airbnb can be confusing because a lot of people want to scream from the rooftops, oh, I made 35000 on this small apartment. Yeah, but what did you spend operating that? And I think that's the thing that people don't want to look at and don't um, maybe prep themselves on enough going into it because Airbnb is full of expenses. You're paying all the utilities, which you don't as a long-term landlord and maybe landscaping and snow removal and it's just on and on. I think sometimes the returns are not as good as people want to believe. And sometimes they're not a ton better than just doing long term. They're like maybe a little bit, but not a huge amount. And then when I do co-hosting, it seems to be really good. And especially if you can be in the luxury market. I personally can't buy a multi-million dollar home, but I do manage a few of them. And I can make $1,000 on a booking as the co-host. That can be a really lucrative space. And I think it's a great thing to get into. But of course, you need some experience. So I generally recommend people starting with their own places where they can make their mistakes and learn before they're trying to manage like a $2 million house. Vina, Paul was mentioning that the more actively you're involved in something, hopefully the higher returns you'll be able to eke out of it. You've mentioned that with syndication, there's this ability that you have to be active enough to understand the operator, but otherwise it's fairly passive. How do you find the returns for most of your investors to be with that active-passive mix? For our LP investors, I would say, you know, it's a risk adjusted return, right? The higher the return, the riskier the asset, even within the multifamily class. We historically do not go into like C and D assets. You certainly can make great returns. You know, the thing about the real estate pie is it's large and you can make money in all different ways in real estate. We prefer to stay kind of laser focused on our bread and butter and what we do really well. And then we refer out to our partners who are in various other spaces that 
have really great operations, we refer out if our investors are looking for a different asset class. So as far as the returns go, it's a risk-adjusted return. We definitely are seeing high returns right now um, with the way the market is booming. Interest rates are coming down. We're seeing a lot of growth in the rental space in our markets. We select our markets very carefully because of that. On the active side, it's absolutely more lucrative. Obviously, you're putting in a lot more work and time and energy and effort in addition to capital. So I would say, yes, the active returns are definitely higher, but the LP returns are great too. And if you want a higher return, you have to take on more risk. And that goes for any asset class that you're in. You just kind of have to pick what your risk tolerance is and go into that asset class or diversify across asset classes that have the risk tolerance combined that you're looking for. Can you just clarify the different type of investors that syndications get? You mentioned an LP investor and then an active investor. What's the difference there? Typically, there's two buckets. There's your GP investor, which is your general partner or your active investor. So that would be someone like myself, who is the operator. Or there's your LP investor, which is your limited partner. And that's your passive investor or your inactive investor. That means that they sit in a fund where there's no control on the property. They don't make day-to-day decisions. For example, I just had a fire happen at one of my properties 15 minutes before we got on this call. And so you know, I'm handling that. I'm dealing with that. My investors aren't going to like pick up the phone and call insurance adjusters and make sure that our public adjuster is involved, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's on the active side that I handle that. But on the passive side, our investors will be informed about it. And then that's the extent of what they do as far as something like that goes. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Paul, Vina, and Ziana discussed how they got into real estate in the first place. After the break, we delve into which flavor is best for you. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Paul, we've talked about returns. Let's look at the other side. What are the biggest pain points of what you're doing currently? Well, I'm lazy and I really work hard not to work. My pain points are always in automating or delegating tasks that are mundane. There's a lot of paperwork in real estate. There's a lot of nuances to be aware of. And there's just a lot of details to get right. I haven't heard anything we've talked about right here that didn't include knowing a bunch of details. And so learning how to get those details in place and just making sure your books are done and your taxes are more complicated, that comes with real estate. And so I find that to be my biggest pain point because that's not my personality. I have to delegate those tasks out to make sure they're done well. But that's what keeps me the busiest now is not doing those things. I want to just assure the audience, I know Paul Thompson fairly well, and he is the busiest lazy person I know. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if you should believe what he just said there. (laughs) So Ziana, let me ask you the same question. What are the biggest pain points in your current business? So I would echo the bookkeeping thing, especially with Airbnb. There's just a lot of transactions all the time. I have some friends that have like maybe 50 properties and they're just a long-term landlord and they say, oh, we just have one bank account. And you know, you just double check that somebody paid their $1,500 that month and that's the only expense going in and out. Each one of my homes have their own bank account and credit card and there's like hundreds of transactions. It's just insanity. So I currently do it myself and I I went to go get a quote from a bookkeeper the other day and it was going to be $400 a month and I was like, I don't think so. So we'll see. Currently I am doing it, but I think last year I kind of let things go a little bit far. I'm trying to do them every two weeks, but it doesn't always happen that way. And it ended up the year with 40 or 50 hours of bookkeeping work to do. So Try not to do that this year. <laughs> Vina, besides the aforementioned fire, I assume there's no pain points at all in being a syndicator, right? Nope, nothing goes wrong ever in multifamily. Everything is all glitter and gold here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a bookkeeping, I think every real estate investor can totally agree that the bookkeeping is just a god-awful task. I'm so lucky that I have a partner who's super meticulous. And so poor thing, she gets like all of this thrown on her because she's so good at it. And she, I'm sure she hates us for it, but she does all of our interfacing. We actually have a bookkeeper that we've hired. We have a tax strategist we've hired. So she kind of interfaces with them. And I'm so glad that she does because I really don't want to. But for me, I would say the biggest pain point that we have is actually sourcing really great deals. And that's just like a indication of where we are in the market. It's not so much like an indication of real estate in general. We're finding less and less great deals to go into. And we're finding a lot of okay deals. We're finding a lot of deals that, yeah, they'd work out if every single thing went right, which they never do. We just aren't going into as many deals as we were at one point. So I would say that's the biggest pain point is not being able to source enough deals and having more capital than deals. It's really painful when you have to write back a seven-figure check to investors because you just don't have enough room in the deal. So that's one big pain point. Another big pain point is, like Paul said, you have to know all the details about everything all the time and delegating out It's hard to do when you're trusting somebody to do all these things that are really important that you usually do. But as you scale, it's something that you kind of have to do. Paul, we're recording February 28th, 2020. And yesterday was one of the largest drops in the Dow I think that we've ever seen. I think back to 2008 when both the stock market and real estate market crashed at the same time. Tell me what the next real estate bubble looks like to you with your current investments. How will it affect you? 
With my opaque crystal ball, I will tell you that there is a crash coming. I don't know when, I don't know how far, I don't know how deep, but winter is coming. And all the indicators would tell us that winter is coming. So what do you do about that? And how do you protect yourself from that? One of the biggest risks that most people are taking right now that they're not thinking about is that they're taking on commercial loans that have demand clauses. And when there is another credit crisis, those loans can be called on you at any time for any reason, even if you are current. The other risk that people are doing is they're still thinking that they're making investments based on pro formas or they're making investments based on it's going to appreciate sooner or later or forever. These are the two biggest flaws. And if you need to invest based on what Vina was saying, fundamentals, conservative numbers. However, I would say it is still a good time to invest in real estate because if you can do it now, then you can do it later. So all the skills you need to develop to invest are still necessary. So start doing it now. And then when the crash comes, you will be primed to make the most advantage of it. Don't try and learn it during the crash because it's too late. Ziana, are Airbnbs a little more recession-proof even if the market goes down, even if we enter an economic downturn? People still tend to travel. Do you think that you will wither the next recession okay? That's funny. I don't think people travel. <laughs> I'm like waiting around for this going like, ooh, what's it going to look like? I think what's good for me personally on the homes that I own is that I bought them with the exit strategy of if I have to go long term, will these deals still work? So I always wanted to do that. And then using time up front to pay the loans down and just to not be as leveraged or some of the homes I bought in cash. So I'm just not the typical real estate investor who is really leveraged. A lot of people try to max all that out and I'm just a little more conservative. I'd rather just have less properties and pay them all off and just get the the cash flowing that way. I don't know what Airbnb is going to do, but I know in my personal properties, I'm fine. And then with other people that I manage for them, yeah, maybe they'll stop doing it. But if I'm managing for them, I'm still making money. So that's pretty good too. And then I think it depends depends on the market. I have a lot of properties in places like St. Louis and people are not really traveling there for a vacation. They're traveling there to go check out a school, to go to a conference, to go visit family. And those are things that won't change, but people might not be on a beach in Hawaii. My properties are generally pretty safe, I feel. Vina, are you looking at the next real estate downturn as a buying possibility or with a little more trepidation? No, I'm like salivating, waiting for this crash to come. (laughs) Even for the last like 18 months, we've been increasing our cash positions as a company and getting ready to be able to really take advantage of a bubble burst. Yeah, I think it's going to come. I think the key word I think both Paul and Ziona both mentioned is leverage, right? One of the big things that we're seeing in our industry is we're seeing a lot of syndicators leveraging up their properties and what they're doing. So Fannie and Freddie have what's called a debt service coverage ratio or the DSCR of a property. What it means is for every dollar of debt you put on the property, you have to have $1.25 of income coming in based on the T12 or the PNL statement from the last 12 months. What is happening is because people are paying so much for a property, their debt service coverage ratio is pulling down what they can actually leverage up the property. So while you might have historically seen 75-80% leverage on a property, today you're seeing like 65, 70, 72%. And so what happens is when Fannie and Freddie put those restrictions on leverage, and I know I'm going like really into the details here, but I think this is very important for passive and active investors to really understand. So what happens is a lot of syndicators cannot purchase the asset 
unless they bring more leverage to the table because investor equity is very expensive. And so what they're doing is they're going and getting what we call a bridge loan or it's being called a private loan. And it's a three-year interest-only loan with two one-year extensions. And then they buy a cap on the floating rate. It makes sense today because interest rates are really low. The problem you have is you're leveraging up to like 75%, 80% sometimes. What happens when the market comes down and now your property doesn't have enough equity that you can refi at the end of that three years or four years or five years? Are you going to bring a million dollars to the table to close? Are you going to fire sale the asset? Are you going to let it go into foreclosure? What's the plan there? And so we're seeing that a lot. And so I see a lot of private loans and bridge loans being used incorrectly. There are definitely reasons to use them. They definitely have a place. It's just for us, it's not just so we can achieve the leverage that we want to achieve. Paul, listening to Vina, this sounds like pretty complicated stuff. And if I'm your average Joe or Jane, maybe I'm not in love with real estate, but I feel like it should be part of my asset allocation. How would you tell that person to get involved in real estate? What flavor is the best? I don't think there is one best investment, but let's take the avatar of somebody who is currently in the stock market and they have a high net worth and they're potentially able to fire and they're just trying to limit their exposure to equities. But you just want a passive investment for your investments. You don't want to get into any of the active stuff. Everything we've talked about, we are all business owners about real estate. If you want to be a real estate investor and you just want to be passive, that's when you start looking at syndications. That's when you start looking at REITs. I'm not a big fan of these crowdsourcing platforms that are out there. Uh, Vina's not her, her head no to. They have no track record. I'm not a big fan of that. But REITs, do have a very long track record and actually have very good returns. And it gives you exposure to the asset class of real estate if that's what you want for diversification. Now, you may not get as good of returns as you could get inside of a well-run syndicator. That's my stance because I kind of stand in that same place. Do I want to do that? Do I just want to back off and take what I have in my IRA or my solo 401k and just kind of be exposed to real estate, but not have me doing really anything? These are things that I think through as well. And that's where I have considered putting some of my money. But I always come back to, well, I know how to do it better. So I want to go and make the money by doing the work. Vina, speak to this idea. I've heard that REITs or real estate investment trusts tend to correlate with the stock market to a much higher degree than syndications do. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, I do think that that's true. And again, I think it goes back to it's more of like a fund than it is a true single property investment. What's happening in DC in one property may not be affecting something that's happening in San Diego, for example, at another asset. And so that's the difference between syndication is you're really focusing on just one asset at a time, but you're putting all your eggs into that one basket too. So there's, you know, risk and reward on both sides of that. Ziana, I'd ask you the same question. If you are coming into this as a novice and maybe you don't want to be a real estate professional like I'd consider all three of you, what's the best flavor of real estate to be involved in? Knowing what I know now, I would probably always use Airbnb because I love it, but maybe just on my personal property. So one of the ways that I utilize Airbnb is both my boyfriend and I work from home. So we're on a platform where we do a lot of pet sitting. And so we find places even nearby 
I live in Colorado, there's a lot of ski towns nearby. So we'll go stay in a beautiful mountain chalet for free with some pets and then rent out our home on Airbnb. So finding creative ways to make money off of your house is great. And that's a great starting point. But then taking that cash flow and investing it somewhere. And if you're not feeling super confident, then finding a syndication can be great. And there's some that are a lot lower entry, like maybe 25,000 or something. I personally don't think the returns that I've seen in REITs are very attractive. They seem kind of boring to me, but I've seen some great syndication returns. And I think for myself, getting older, getting lazier like Paul, that I'm like, screw it. I'm going right to syndication. So if you find a good operator, I think that can be a really great place. Paul, do you think it's a mistake not to have some sort of real estate as part of your asset allocation? No, you will find very few real estate investors that will say that. I am not an advocate that real estate must be a part of your portfolio. You have to know yourself. And there are other asset classes that are out there that work just fine and are a lot easier to be passive. If you want to be a passive investor, real estate probably isn't the first thing that should come to mind. Now, what it can give you is residual income. And that's what I've started using instead when you're looking to be an individual investor and you're trying to buy properties of whatever asset class, you can create significant residual income while also creating future wealth. There's not very many other asset classes that you can do that at the scale and at the returns of real estate. That's the advantage of real estate. Not to mention there's this advantage of leverage that we all talk about, but inherent in that is risk. Vina, do you agree with Paul? Should real estate be part of any asset allocation or is it okay to pass? I think it's okay to pass if that is not your cup of tea. Some people don't invest into gold or silver and some people don't invest into the stock market. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to make money. Even within real estate, we're talking about three completely different business models that all do really well and all have their advantages. So I think it could be because I think that there's probably something for everybody within the real estate pie, but I don't think it has to be by any chance. Ziana, I usually end by asking what's up next in your life and where can we find you? But I'm going to modify that a little bit. I'm going to ask what is your most recent or planned on big deal and where can we find you on the internet? I just bought a place last month that we moved into and we're going to be you know, trying to live rent free or, you know, mortgage free by leveraging it um, on Airbnb. So that's always exciting to have a new place. And I feel very fortunate that Airbnb is in my life and I can have very lazy days. I think I'm lazier than Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, currently, you know, I love real estate and I'm just learning more and more and there's so many different ways to do it. So for me, yeah, I'm moving more towards the syndication space and not to do them myself, but just to put money there. You didn't ask me, but I do think that real estate is an important part to have in your portfolio. A lot of people don't, but I think it's nice to have something active when a lot of my friends only invest in index funds. And I think that's great, but you're totally a slave to whatever the market's doing. I like having a little bit of both. And where can people find you? Oh yeah, my website, ziannamcintyre.com. C-E-O-N-A, McIntyre is M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E.com. I imagine you can put that in the show notes. Yep, it will be there. Vina, what is your next big deal and where can we find you on the internet? I can't really talk about my next big deal (laughs) because there are SEC rules and we don't do public raises. So what I will say is our last big deal closed in December. We had a $45 million asset in the Orlando market that we bought. It's doing really, really well. Luckily, we're having people 
lined up on a waiting list and we've just started pushing rents and haven't even been able to get in and renovate. So that's great news. I think that one's going to do really well. You can find me on the internet at enzobrands.com or you can email my admin at hello at enzoventures, E-N-Z-O-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. Paul Thompson, that leaves you. I know you say your goal is to do as little work as possible, but I know that you have at least a few deals brewing. What is your latest deal and where can we find you? Well, let's start with where you can find me so I remember to say it. So my website is pauldavidthompson.com, kind of how you expect to spell that. That's how that's how where it is. And as far as deals go, I have a philosophy of doing a whole bunch of little deals versus buying one big sexy deal. You make more money buying big, sexy deals, but it it takes more work. So I buy a lot of uh, simple, easy transactions that use creative methods. So for example, I'm now investing inside of my IRA. And an interesting subject there is I am now growing what they call small dollar IRAs. And I think that's the sexy part of what I'm doing right now in my life is my children have small dollar IRAs and they own properties or notes inside of their IRAs for which they only have a few hundred dollars to invest with. And I am growing those kind of deals. And it's probably too advanced to get into the topic there, but that's what I spend most of my time talking about now is how to grow small dollar IRAs. Leave it to Paul Thompson to bring sexy back to real estate. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Paul Thompson, Vina Jetty, and Ziana McIntyre. That's a wrap. I've spent a lot of time on this show talking about my past, about my history. I've talked about my childhood and those things that I've overcome to become the person I am today. The truth of the matter is it feels a little bit selfish. Because when I talk about myself in the past, those things I've achieved, I've really only told you my story. There have been a number of people who helped me throughout my life who I would have never been successful without. And in particular, two women bear mentioning today. When my father died, he not only left three children, he also left a wife a woman who had depended on him to do all of the financial things necessary for the house as well as take part in child rearing. After he died, my mom had to be taught how to write a check. She had never done it before. From that time on, she not only finished business school, got an MBA, became an accountant, but looked after not only the financial but also emotional well-being of her three children. And looking back at my life, any success that I have, anything I've achieved, can only be done so by attributing a huge part of that to my mother. She was my rock of support financially. She was my rock of support emotionally. Every time I needed help, she was there. I was lucky enough to meet the woman of my dreams and get married just after medical school. My wife has changed just about everything about me. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not the same old person that I was, but she gave me courage to do things like start businesses. When I first met my wife and I was in medical school, she said, you know, you should really do the combined MD-MBA program at Northwestern. You're there already anyway, and it's only an extra year. 
And I looked at her and I'm like, what, are you crazy? There's no way I'm going to take an extra year and not go to residency and not become a doctor. She saw in me what I didn't see in myself, which was a proclivity for business and learning and growing and leadership. There's so many things I have learned by being married to my wife. And one of the greatest joys in life is to see her be the mother of my children, to teach them all these important things that she also helped teach me. I can't imagine being married to anyone else. There are two women who have totally changed my life, my mother and my wife. So I wanted to say a belated happy Mother's Day. We are the summation of the people we surround ourselves with. And I have been lucky enough to be surrounded by a mother and a wife who have helped me be all I can be. So here's the, here's the real question, Doc, is... Where can you make the biggest returns? What's what's the what's the one asset class? Let's, let's do a, um, uh, a little sample here. Where can you go and if you started from nowhere, where can you go and make the biggest returns the fastest? House hacking. <laughs> House, House hacking? hacking can make the biggest Probably. percentage returns, not yeah, necessarily the biggest dollar value. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I don't actually know. I'm like you tell me. <laughs> I mean, there's. I think it depends, right? Because like if you're starting with zero, it's, it's going to be somewhere in the real estate pie. It's not going to be right. in the stock market, right? So the typical path of progression, I would say, is wholesaling houses. Mm-hmm. And then you go to like wholesaling maybe apartment complexes of some sort. Sure. Then you go to some sort of, you branch out from there, right? Either you go to like note lending, you go to hard money lending, you go to syndication, maybe you go into Airbnb, the fix and flip model. Um, so I think it's just, you kind of keep going up, but there's so many branches you have to pick which branch. It starts to branch out and you got to pick one. You really do. Mm-hmm. That's why like we have so many investors that ask us like, Hey, are you guys interested in doing this hotel deal or this land play or, or I mean, they're great deals, but no, mm-hmm. they're not your expertise. Yeah. Stick in yeah. your swim lane for sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a fun real estate smackdown. Yeah. There, there, there wasn't so. enough smacking going on. Yeah, Come on, guys. But Come on, I, didn't, I didn't want it to be like that kind of aggressive. I just wanted this idea of hear how three different people do it and why what they do works for them. Because I feel mm-hmm. like we don't talk about... Obviously, like you said, real estate's a big thing. And most a lot of people do not want to do the single family thing, right? So there are plenty of people who don't want to do that and they feel like there's no other way to be involved. And you guys are three examples of people who have really run with these alternate ways, have made very successful livings off of it and are not doing that traditional I'm a landlord and showing up and fixing the sink and blah, blah, blah. So I just think it's a nice pushback to the normal narrative of this is how you do real estate. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.